0: If you think of the world's great cities, they have much in common, perhaps, vibrant arts, cultural scene, a terrific architecture, and, of course, superb food. And and this is something that, well, Australian cities can boast as well, a vibrant food scene. Food writers uh, play a substantial role in, in that culture, the to and fro of, of ideas, of, of critique. Uh, what happens if a city sort of drops off the, the map a little bit uh, in, in terms of restaurant criticism. Does that matter? Does that impact that culture? Uh, Besha Riddell is is perhaps going to find out. She's uh, recently appointed as Chief Restaurant Critic for The Age and Good Weekend. Besha, um, you may have read her work, LA Weekly, New York Times, but you won't have seen her. And she remains a physical mystery. Besha, welcome. Thank you. Tell us about that mystery, your, your, your anonymity.
1: Yeah. Well, I was lucky to start in uh, food criticism right at the kind of beginning of social media. So my first job as a food critic was in Atlanta. Georgia and was around 2005. So, you know, two years after Facebook launched. So I never had my photo online. Um, And I think I'm probably the last, uh, you know, of of the generation (laughs) that was able to kind of live in the world without having your photo a bazillion times all over the internet. And at that point in time, food criticism was very, different than it is now. There wasn't as many blogs. There wasn't influences. It wasn't like that. It was mainly kind of stuffy old white guys at the paper who had been another kind of person and then got a the sweet job of the restaurant critic, you know, <laughs> <Yes>. um, and <laughs> well
0: upholstered. Yes.
1: And, <laughs> and anonymity was, you know, especially the people who did it very seriously, places like the New York times, it was a bit of, you know, it was kind of the job you you tried to go to the restaurant without people knowing that you were there. And I really aspired to that form of criticism at the time. And so I didn't have my photo anywhere and I just have made main- that since part of that is for the obvious reasons. I think people kind of can understand why you wouldn't want to get special treatment, you want to see how you're treated, what kind of service you get, if you're just a normal person. There are so many other reasons though. For me, it's just way more mm. comfortable, mm. honestly. Um, I, I hate making people nervous and it and I don't want to have a meal out where everybody's freaking out and that can <laughs> happen. So, there's so many reasons, but you know, I don't think it'll last forever. You know, I might want to write a book one day or do something that will mean I need to be in public a little more. But mm. as long as that isn't the case, as long as there isn't a compelling reason, then
0: I'm going to stick with it. But it's such a wonderful counterpoint in this world to to carry out a, a career of cultural craft without making yourself the focus of attention.
1: <laughs> well, I do think that that's a real thing in restaurant criticism. There are folks especially in the kind of british model that really revel in the notoriety of it and love that thing where they walk in the door and everybody kind of (laughs) drops their (laughs) and that's certainly the kind of single
0: dropped knife
1: (laughs) 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 exactly that's that's the critic that is usually portrayed in movies and and um but to me that sounds horrible actually
0: (laughs) So, so in preserving that anonymity what's your booking strategy
1: um, I book under a variety of fake names. Um, I, before the kind of touch, uh, very easy credit card thing, I had all kinds of credit cards in fake names. Um, <laughs> yeah, wow. it's, it, it's really, I mean, when it comes down to it, it's really silly. Like it, it is like playing spy games as an adult. Right.
0: It's a bit MI5. is isn't it? <laughs> yeah.
1: Which, and it's just food. So it, there's parts of me that cringe at it, but the benefit is such that I I maintain that. So
0: I mean, it's interesting because you followed in the footsteps of, of the late great Jonathan Gold at LA Weekly, uh, mm-hmm. someone whose whose reputation and presence preceded him. It's you're, you're yes. quite a contrast to his style.
1: Yes. Well, he kind of feigned anonymity for a while, and then when he won the Pulitzer, that's when he kind of officially gave it up. But he was such a visually striking person that everybody knew what he looked like, and I do think that that's a point at which, too, the silliness becomes extra silly if you're just pretending that people don't know you're there when they obviously do. But Jonathan, he... Also was not really a critic in the old fashioned sense. He, hmm. you know, he never gave ratings. Much of his writing was almost literary. <laughs> you know, you often couldn't tell whether he liked a restaurant or not, but it was <laughs> such a joy to read him that it didn't matter. And he did a lot of the kind of stuff where he was going out and finding, you know, the most amazing taco on some street corner. It wasn't Mostly wasn't him giving a rating to a fancy new restaurant, so I think that it mattered a little less in that sense.
0: But how does one sort of school oneself as a as a restaurant critic? What's the path to that? Again, I think the usual path is like eating eating,
1: and having a fair amount of money to do so and spending a fair amount of time kind of, you know, having three martini lunches for other reasons. And that has been the tradition. My path was incredibly different. I was a waitress and a cook for a time. I went to college in New York City and my now husband worked in a really fancy restaurant in New York. And I was waiting tables there. And while I was in school for writing, I kind of realized that the thing that I knew the most about was food and wine, having worked in restaurants for so long and really loving that culture and the culture of hospitality Mm and Kept being sucked back into it, even when I was kind of trying to work for publishing houses and stuff. I kept going back to waiting tables because I just loved that conversation around dining and realized that I really should kind of marry the two things that I was passionate about. I also think that young writers often make the mistake of saying, well, I'm a really good writer So I should be a journalist when I think that an area of specialty Hmm. is really important. I mean, now it kind of goes the other way where people who aren't writers at all become food journalists because they're obsessed with food. And that's another difficulty, especially as an editor. (laughs) Um, But I think that, you know, people who do really well in journalism are often people who didn't go to school for journalism. They went to school for politics or, or, you know, my mother's a journalist. She went to school for Southeast Asian studies. So Mm. yes, for me, I decided while I was in college that I really wanted to be a restaurant critic. And then I pursued that, but I didn't come from a bunch of money and I had to really tutor myself and living in New York City for a few years was a huge part of that.
0: Does that inform your work? Does that inform the purpose of your project as, as a critic? Is that absence of privilege, and this is a world in which privilege is abundant, and in which privilege you know, creates access, is part of your your project? Studying that, making um, you know, an examination of that effect.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think that it would be almost impossible to be a journalist in any sense of the word over the last 10 years and and not be thinking somewhat about privilege. But I do think that it helps to come from a place where it has not always just been something that you could take for granted. A very well-known journalist in the US a couple of years ago tweeted something about how he wanted to um, see food criticism from somebody who had lived on food stamps And I replied that there was a period of my life I got pregnant quite young, um, was living in North Carolina, and my husband was working at a restaurant making no money. And um, we actually were on food stamps for a little while in there when I was first starting out as a freelancer, was trying to make a go of it. This was right after college. And, you know, part of what I said, I responded back to him was, you know, this was my experience, but part of what i loved about restaurants too was what they represented like i think poor people are allowed to like <laughs> want luxury too or or, or want pleasure and mm. and so it's a balance for me of of seeing it from a point of view where you have to take value into consideration. You have to take workers into consideration. I don't think that, you know, the value of a restaurant is just whether the food is good. Are they, are they treating people well? And, you know, you can't always tell that, but when they're obviously not, that's a consideration for me, but also the understanding that people from all walks of life want to have joy and pleasure, and it can be found now almost at every price point. And, I do think that a big thing for me, something that I'm grappling with, honestly, with my new position at The Age is how do we rank restaurants? What do we value and how much of it is about fanciness? And there has been a historical real, you know, people get hats based on fanciness and ambition. And I don't know how I feel about that. I, I can't change it overnight. Certainly that would be hard and it wouldn't be fair to readers i don't think but i am definitely thinking about those things
0: so there's a sense i I, am getting from what you say in which a a a robust food culture is is a a complete ecosystem it 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 has the fine dining as much as it has the taco stand and those those things are that's an essential curve between those things
1: I've always thought about restaurant criticism in terms of what do we want cities to look like and what do we want to champion? And I mean, that's good criticism of any sort, right? Architecture, art, music. What are we wanting to celebrate in the culture that we have? Mm -hmm. And that's a little bit trickier in Australia than it is somewhere like New York or LA. Um, I just think that Australia is only just now coming into the idea of, of what it's real value is in the world and isn't kind of trying to imitate other places in in its culture, you know, Um, in terms of food, but other places too. But I think that that's a real question for Melbourne that is vital right now is Do we want our cities to be dominated by these very expensive restaurants that are often owned by big, huge groups that are very much like very expensive restaurants everywhere else in the world? They might be great and they might be lovely, but they don't necessarily, to me, reflect what I love about Melbourne and what I would like to see Melbourne become. So I'm really looking at ways to try to shine a light on the things that I feel like we as a city in an international sense should be
0: kind of shouting from the rooftops about ourselves you know. Where does your eye fall when you walk in the door of a restaurant?
1: Oh because I worked in restaurants for so long and was a manager of restaurants for a really long time and I'm kind of pretty empathetic person. I often kind of absorb the energy of the staff more than anything else, which does a lot to tell me about, you know, how busy they are, whether they're being treated well, whether this is a fun place to work and therefore a fun place to eat. I mean, the best experience is when you walk in and you hear all that, you know, the chatter and the tinkle of glasses and the stuff. I love that sound. I've never gotten sick of that sound. So, I'm looking for that energy and really looking at You know, how are you greeted? Um, How does it feel to just... It it should feel magical every time. It still does for me, even though it's my job. So that's kind of what I look at initially.
0: You're Melbourne-based, but of course this is a country of... Many food cultures in different, and a, a variation in those city food cultures. Have you, have you mm-hmm. noticed that in your, your travels around this place on return? Is there a.
1: Definitely. Yeah. I was really, really fortunate when I first got back in 2017 to be working for the New York Times and writing a food column for them about Australia, which was a very strange gig, but a really fun one. (laughs) And that was national in scope. So I spent the first two years, I was here really traveling and rediscovering my own country because I left when I was a teenager. So Mm. I got to see pretty much every, you know, important city and a lot of the regional stuff going on too. And again, I kept kind of coming back to the idea of like, what is uniquely Australian, Mm. which of these places is really um, kind of creating something that you couldn't find elsewhere. And that to me was the real thrill of that job. And and the thing that was surprising to me was where I was finding that, you know. Um, Do you have an
0: answer to that yet? I mean, what are the elements of that?
1: I do think there's a couple of places that I'd doing pretty well with that. Um, The Northern rivers of New South Wales has this really lovely little restaurant culture, that has been growing in the last 10 years. And it's interesting, my father had a house um, there, so I've been visiting there since I was, you know, 20 or something and seen that change from a sleepy little place to, you know, (laughs) now is just like, you know, it's all Byron, basically. But um, (laughs) but (laughs) but they but the really high end restaurants there are really leaning into the, you know, the foods that are right around there and And the best of them, you couldn't find anywhere except at that exact place in the world. I think the same is true for Tasmania. They're so proud of what they're producing here, food-wise, that they're really, really highlighting, you know, their fantastic wines, but also, you know, all of the incredible seafood that you can get here. And then apart from that, I'm interested in, you know, I've... (laughs) I came back and was fascinated at how people sometimes seem kind of ashamed of like, you know, Ligon Street or (laughs) the things that our immigrant cultures have created as much as 100 years ago but that are uniquely Australian. I mean, there is such a thing as Italian-Australian food as there is Italian-American food, but we cringe about it a bit, you know. And is not
0: the case in in Brooklyn, say. No,
1: it isn't. (laughs) And, And if I could do anything to change the food culture of Australia, it would be that. It would be to say this is unique and it's ours and it's fantastic and it has its own inherent value and we don't need to try to be Italy. I mean, it's great when you get that very authentic Italian experience here, and you can get that a couple of places in Melbourne. But I still love the Waiters Club. I love places like that that are so Melbourne. Again, that couldn't exist anywhere else. That are a product completely of the place and the story of the immigrants that came here. And
0: every city has has those equivalents. I mean, it's a, absolutely it's the function yeah. of, a, of a settler culture, I guess that yeah, those things absolutely. occur.
1: Yeah, I was fascinated when I went to Perth to find the Conti Roll, which is a deli sandwich. And you can't really get an Italian deli sandwich anywhere else in Australia, not a decent one and not widely available. But in Perth, they have these deli sandwiches that are very much like what you would get at a deli in New York. But it grew up completely separately from... (laughs) That New York deli sandwich or the Northeastern one, it was invented by the Italian immigrants to Perth who would, you know, stuff meat in the roll and go back to work when they were laborers. And that to me is just, I mean, that's what gives me goosebumps, those kinds of things. When you discover things about culture through the food that you just would never have known otherwise.
0: Besha, what a what a treat to have the work you do and what a wonderful approach you obviously take to it. Thank you so much and, and all the best in your venture. Well, thank you. Besha Riddell, uh, just appointed as Chief Restaurant Critic for The Age and Good Weekend. You will see her words in those places. And this is Blueprint. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABCRN.